0: Brian O'Leary, you're an Irish Jesuit and you have written many, many books and articles on Ignatian spirituality, on the Constitutions. And your work has now been collated into one book, not all of it, obviously, but some of your essays and articles from down the years that were in disparate places in a book called To Love and To Serve. Tell me about these selected essays and the content.
1: It's a selection that I, I made myself what I considered to be the the better articles that I had written over the years. I mean, the subtitle says it all in a way. What is it about? Well, it's about exploring the Ignatian tradition. And uh, the division is in many ways a fairly obvious division that anyone who has any familiarity with Ignatian tradition would uh, recognize easily enough, starting with the spiritual exercises, which is the foundational document and indeed the foundational experience uh, for people in this tradition, following that with the Jesuit Constitutions, then taking time to republish some of my work on Pierre Favre, which was my earliest uh, serious venture into Ignatian spirituality because uh, he was the subject of my doctoral thesis uh, in Rome. So he gets um, a section to himself. And then uh, part four is called Ignatian Varia, where we put together a range of articles that simply don't fit in the, uh, under the other heading. They're a mixture of different ways of approaching Ignatian spirituality and of trying to understand it. And then part five, the last one is, uh, I hesitated about putting this in, it's not specifically Ignatian, but uh, since I can't do anything else except look at things through an Ignatian lens, because it's, it's what I have, I'm looking at some more general themes in spirituality.
0: That's a good outline. Can you tell me, for people listening to this, you've done a lot of work and you said your lens is Ignatian. Could you sum up for us what that is? How Ignatian spirituality is different from other spiritualities? What makes it unique?
1: It's unique and it's not unique. That's a kind of a paradox. There is a lot being written, said about Ignatian spirituality today that I would question whether it's actually specifically Ignatian. There's a lot being written that conveys quite legitimately and quite persuasively aspects of Christian spirituality. Now that's fine and I'm quite happy to to read and and to uh, think about that. What's unique about Ignatian spirituality is perhaps its focus on the unity of our lives that we we don't live compartmentalized lives with the spiritual on one side and the secular, or if you like, the more human on, on the other. That we live a life that is at one and the same time, a life of union with God and seeking that union. And on the other hand, living a life that is immersed in the world and takes on board the concerns of the world and tries to meet the needs of the world. Now, other spiritualities do that, but Ignatian spirituality is probably the first in the history of Christian spirituality that did it to such an extent and unified human life to such an extent as appears in this combination of exercises constitutions, and other teachings of Ignatius. I mean, this is a selected group of articles. There is nothing there on a very important source, namely the letters of St. Ignatius, which uh, reveal how he applies Ignatian spirituality in different situations and different interprets it for different people. It's simply because I never wrote on the letters, (laughs) Uh, but I'm aware that they have to be part of any full investigation of the Ignatian tradition. So I would go for that kind of sense of integration, that sense of the unity of the human person, the unity of human life, in the sense that it's not compartmentalized, you cannot divide it up, Uh, you are the one person Whether you are at prayer, whether you are worshipping, whether you are reading, whether you are washing the dishes, whether you are trying to learn some new technique in technology, no matter what you're doing, you're the one person. You're the person God sees. You're the person God loves. You're the person whom you are serving, no matter what you're doing.
0: For people then who would come to this book as a selection of essays, Who did you have in mind when you were compiling them?
1: Well, the simple answer, I suppose, is anyone with an interest in exploring Ignatian spirituality. Now, that's a huge range of people because uh, one extreme, if you want to call it that, you have Jesuits themselves. And a lot of this had its origin in situations uh, where I was involved with other Jesuits. But then you have those from other religious congregations especially those uh, who have used the Jesuit constitutions as either their own or at least as influencing and kind of molding their, their own constitutions. In fact, two of those groups come through very specifically in this collection because I have one article on Mary Ward, the founders of the Loretto sisters and the Congregation of Jesus, uh, and Mary Ward is an extraordinarily important figure in the history, not just in the history of Christianity or of religious life, but in the history of Ignatian spirituality too, because uh, she took it on board 100% and she fought tooth and nail to have the constitutions in their fullness for her sisters. So, and she shows that Ignatian spirituality, although Ignatius was a man, can be lived and lived enthusiastically by women. And then the second example was Mary Madeline Dewey, who was uh, two centuries later, Mary Ward 17th century, Mm -hmm. Mary Madeleine Dewey, 19th century. She founded the Faithful Companions of Jesus. And like Mary Ward, she fought tooth and nail to have the Jesuit constitutions for her sisters. So that that whole group of um, congregations, especially those, who see themselves as part of the Ignatian tradition, they could delve into this, I think, with interest. Then you have lay people. Many lay people have been introduced uh, already to the Ignatian tradition through different adaptations or versions of the spiritual exercises, and some have even done the full spiritual exercises, either as a 30-day retreat or as exercises in daily life which is geared more specifically, if you like, to people who are taken up by the responsibilities of family and workplace and so on. But there's an even bigger group, at least I'm presuming a bigger group out there who see themselves as searchers, who are searching for meaning in their life, searching for a, a spirituality which is suitable to their needs, which answers their questions and with which they can relate. And they mightn't want to start with part one or two or even three on um, Father, but on even Nation Varia, because some of the articles there are, are what grab searchers. For instance, the one on the mysticism of saint ignatius mysticism is a kind of a magical word today you know if you want to sell a book you put mystic or mysticism on the title which i didn't do of course uh, <laughs> but um, that's how you do it people are interested and not just so-called religious people but searchers are interested in mysticism because it offers a new way into the whole experience of life and ultimately of god but whether they name God as God or not is a later question for many of them. Moving on from that, from looking at the mysticism of Ignatius, I have this piece on everyday mysticism and contemporary culture. Now, that's, again, something that can draw in people of any religion and none. How do we take this idea of mysticism, which is so alluring, and see how does it actually work out? And can one be a mystic? in the midst of one's ordinary secular life and responsibilities. So I think there are different ways into this. If you're interested in history, there are many of these articles that either presume a knowledge of history or offer some introduction to history, either in the 16th century for Ignatius himself, or later centuries for other people and other developments. So I would say that, ideally at least, this collection could have a a wide interest, providing it's made known.
0: Brian, when you were selecting those articles and going back over your work, how did you react? Were you surprised that they had stood the test of time, or were there things you had to change, or what was it like going back through them from down the years?
1: I was surprised, suppose in two ways, some of the articles that I said, "Oh well, this will be a bit more dodgy. I'm not quite sure whether I want to put this in or not, but when I read it, I was surprised. yeah, this does stand the test of time, as you say. This is relevant, and it may not be exactly what I would have written today, but it's close enough. and um, kind of I've enjoyed rereading it and reworking it a bit. There were some that I thought originally would have excited me more, but didn't when I came to work on it again. I suppose I probably did more revision of those ones than I would have of the others. I did some work on all of them, but minimal, if you like, on some.
0: Were there any that you looked at and said, "I wouldn't say that now. I wouldn't hold that at all." Was there any that you, you know that you benchmarked a big change in yourself or in your understanding? Of Ignatian spirituality?
1: No, no. I, I felt and still feel that there is a um, fairly smooth development, you know, that I don't have to let go of anything that I have written. I, I can kind of see that they all are coming out of the influence of Joe Veal to, <laughs> to a large extent, at least a lot of them are. His, his influence is there, I can see it there. Um, teach you
0: as an Irish Jesuit theologian or spiritual He died in
1: 1981, but he was the, the leading uh, expert on Ignatian spirituality in the Irish province. And I was an associate editor of his essays when they came out uh, in 2006 with the title Manifold Gifts. That collection of, of Joe Beal's articles probably sowed the seed in me, or the idea, that I might do something similar uh, later on. The only thing I was determined not to imitate him in was I wasn't going to wait until I had died and leave it to somebody else to do the editing.
0: (laughs) I wanted to do the editing myself. You talk about Joe Veal's book, Manifold Gifts, is there, 2006. So 14 years later, what do you think this collection brings to the understanding of Ignatian spirituality that, say, is it expanding on Joe's thought or what what would you say is uniquely yours?
1: Well, a lot of it would be expanding on on Joe's thought. I mean, I work with Joe on the Constitutions, for example. My approach to the Constitutions is in continuity with, with his. Of course, I've asked questions that he didn't ask. Such as, Brian? Well, say, so he'd never worked on Pierre Fabre in, in the way I did. That would be very new. I mean, there's enough dating in material, too. One of the things that disappointed me a bit when I had made that selection was that there's hardly anything here in ecumenism. Now, ecumenism, as you know, is one of my passions, and why doesn't it make an appearance here? In fact, there are some, uh, one of the shorter articles on Favre is about ecumenism. It's about the relationship, uh, well, two of them actually. One is the relationship between himself and the Carthusian Kalkbrenner. That's not directly around ecumenism, though they were working together on the the theology behind the Reformation. So there's a certain amount of indirect, but the other one then was a letter that Pierre Favre wrote giving advice on how to deal with the Lutherans in in Germany. Now, these principles there are very ecumenical. He's out of step, if you like, with the the mainstream of invective and hostility that was there at that time. And then I remembered uh, that two of these articles were actually commissioned by my Lutheran friends in Sweden. The most obvious one, I suppose, is when Pope Francis was elected, they asked me would I write a kind of a reflection on Francis as a Jesuit. And um, I linked that up with the distinction between what is Ignatian and what is Jesuit. It goes back to the difference the distinction between the exercises and constitutions. And then I did another thing for the Lutherans in Sweden uh, around formation, and particularly formation for leadership, uh, which brought me into the uh, constitutions again and helped me to explain to them, then later when I published it to others, how the constitutions, even though written specifically for Jesuits, can in fact be of great use people outside the tradition who are interested in things like formation or in leadership. There is also one of my short articles where I make a contrast between Ignatius and John Wesley. I call it an unlikely pairing, but it's quite interesting, well, for many aspects. One is that it begins with a description of a meeting that John Wesley held outside of Dublin, what happened and some of the things that were said there. It's an amusing description of what happened. On one of his early visits, 1748, Wesley preached twice on the same day on Oxmantown Green, which was then outside the city of Dublin. At the evening service, a man in the crowd, after listening for a time, cried out, Aye, he is a Jesuit. That's plain. A Catholic priest, who happened to be near, replied aloud, No, he is not. I would to God he was. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Peter Faber or Pierre Favre as, as you rightly call him in some ways he's like the perrelation you know we all know about Saint Ignatius or we know about Francis Xavier people rarely know or have heard of Pierre Favre Peter Faber
1: yes and I'm sure most people raised their eyebrows when Pope Francis shortly after his um, election as Pope asked that Pierre Favre be canonized. He had been left in limbo as a, as a beatus. He was blessed to be heard for many years, uh, but the process seemed to have stalled. And Pope uh, Francis came in and said, break that logjam and get him canonized. And he spoke, uh, he's spoken a few times about Pierre Favre and presents him as a model of priesthood. Now, it's interesting that. In, previous popes had nearly always pointed to the curé d'art, John Vianney, as the model of priesthood. But Francis is now pointing to Pierre Favre as the model of priesthood. And that's very, for anybody who kind of has a sense of history and of the subtleties of that change, it's quite enlightening. And uh, I'm not talking about it, writing about it from that point of view. But um, it, it's there. He is an important person, and he obviously influences Francis himself, who in some ways is rather like Pierre Favre. Is,
0: is it because Pierre Favre, kind of, you know, the smell of the sheep, like he went among the people and he could talk to them at their level, and is is that why, Brian, or what? What is the? Um... I
1: think it's. It, I think it's partly that. Uh, I think it's partly his simplicity, which is one of the words I think that Pope Francis used about him. He even says that one of the things he admires in Pierre Fabre is a certain naivete. Now, not many uh, people would associate naivete with Jesuits, <laughs> but Pierre Fabre, I could see what Francis meant. Uh, he was a very simple person. He was a uh, farmer's son, small farming hill farmers in in Savoy. And he had that quality. And it was that quality of simplicity or even of naivety that allowed him to mix with people so easily. There was no side to him, as we said. He was at home everywhere. Yes, he certainly could mix with with the poor and the uneducated, could as easily mix with theologians if you have that gift of simplicity you could also say of humility you can do that because you are not the center of your life you're at ease with others
0: the ego has been tamed
1: Mm. yes yes
0: spiritual direction do you cover that in this book
1: well i i covered it in great detail in in one article an ignatian model of spiritual direction what is specific to it That was originally a lecture that I gave at Regis College in Toronto. This thing about specific, which I almost started with here today, it does grab me, it fascinates me. Can we say that certain things are specific? And we do a lot of reading and writing about spiritual direction, but I'm asking a more concrete question from an Ignatian specialist point of view. What would I say is specific? And I try to put together a number of aspects of spiritual direction without which it wouldn't be Ignatian. You know, that, I take that kind of approach to it. There's also a piece, uh, a number of pages anyway, about spiritual direction in the article on Madeleine Douay. And that I find quite fascinating, and makes me angry at the same time, because I I find that she speaks a lot about her spiritual directors, but they were dreadful. You know, they were authoritarian. They were um, probably um, patriarchal. Um, they interpreted their role in a very different way. Now, they weren't the only people in the, she was 19th century. Uh, spiritual direction had gone in that direction. It, it had taken on that kind of aura. And the, the duty of the directee was to obey. Mary Madeline was discerning at this time about her own future and about whether she was called to found a religious congregation. But when she brought all of this to her spiritual directors, it was they were doing the discernment. She wasn't being encouraged, really, to do the discerning herself. She presented the problem. She presented her thinking on it and how she felt about it. But she was expected then to wait for them to make the decision. And to tell her what God wanted. So there's a, a contrast, great contrast, I think, between those few pages describing this aberration that happened in the tradition of spiritual direction in the nineteenth century, and I think what I'm putting forward in the, the fuller article on what is spiritual direction, what's specific to Ignatian spiritual direction,
0: and. Another thing that struck me while we were talking was what you said about both Margaret Dewey and Mary Ward and how they had to fight tooth and nail to get the Jesuit constitutions. That was the word you used. Why was it so important to them? What do you think they saw in it that they wanted it so greatly and why did they have to fight so hard for it?
1: I think it's easier perhaps to see it in Mary Ward because she to a large extent, based her request and her desire on a vision or mystical experience that she had, where she heard this voice saying to her, take the same of the society. And she interpreted that as meaning take the constitutions of the society. So after that experience, she couldn't be moved, <laughs> as it were from her determination that, yes, she would get them, she would get the constitutions. She failed. I mean, the two congregations that uh, emerged in her tradition, the Congregation of Jesus and uh, the Loretto's, they got the full constitutions somewhere in the 1980s. So there was a gap of a couple of hundred years between Mary Ward and when her desire was fulfilled.
0: And who withheld them? Would that have been the Vatican?
1: It was a mixture, I think. The leadership of the Jesuits was very strongly against it. And I have some lovely quotes there as, as to how the debate went, because we, we have almost transcripts of some of the, the meetings. Both of them had friends among the Jesuits who supported them quite strongly. But at the top leadership, that was mostly where the opposition came. It reminded me a bit, as the Jesuits were claiming copyright on the uh, constitutions, that they couldn't be shared with anybody else. And, uh, it was, uh, yes, uh, holding on to grasping of the constitutions and their hours. We're, we're not going to let them let them go. So that would be true of both of them. I say on, on that level, I think we have more evidence, probably from Mary Madeline, of, of what went on in these conversations in Rome, you know, between her and those on the society side, the leadership side.
0: I'm fascinated because it's, it's not something I would associate with the Jesuits now or with Ignatius himself. They go to the frontier, share what you have and then move on. You know, there's not that possessive sensitivity around the work I'm interested in that it coalesced around really a legal document so if I did set up a, an order.
1: Yes, it's hard to call it a legal document. I mean, there there are legal elements in it, and it is, yes, a juridical, it's um, our juridical code, if you like. But there's so much else there, too, around formation, around leadership, too, around growth, both in the spiritual life and in studies. I mean, all of these things are there. So it's it's a hard document to say it's this one thing. Arupe made a lot of that. He he had a single paragraph once where he mentions all the, the different ways in which the constitutions can be used and what they what they contribute. And um, the juridical aspect of it is, is only one out, out of many many others. And that's why, in a way, it gives the gender their identity. And I think they were afraid that they would maybe lose something of their own identity if there were others, and particularly if there were women who were actually yeah, living out think, of the same.
0: Yeah, I was uh, going to say, was it a gender issue, partly? Hmm fascinating Brian everything is so many interesting themes and the mystical theme as well the mysticism we've spoken about that before and I will put a link through to the interview I had with you on Saint Ignatius and his mysticism as well for people who are interested in following that up as well but for the moment it's to love and to serve selected essays are you happy with it Brian
1: I'm very happy with it, yes. And it has a lovely cover, much commented on. In fact, uh, I think the cover so far has got more praise than the content. So I let all Nolan know that and said uh, it was lucky uh, that I'm not a jealous person.
0: (laughs) You're not holding on tightly to those constitutions.
1: (laughs) Let the praise be spread around.